CM, Nostalgia CM. Hello, my friends and relatives. Welcome to the Friends and Relatives Radio Hour, where we create, share, and educate about stories, news, and ideas from the Coast Salish homeland. We hope to create new ideas of living in this homeland and change perceptions of the Coast Salish people. My name is Satsumton, Satsumton Sunnit Snat, Daryl Holaire, your co-host, along with... I squile Nischalicha CM, Tony Holaire, Eat Satsumton Sunnit Snat, Chuck Lummison, Nukchisin Makwali Aquanas, and Atachala Tiakayas, Outsin Kachit, Tsklamichasin, Iutatasin, Quanas Quanauk, Iustitamsin. Good day, my friends, relatives, and respected people. My name is Tony Hilaire. My name is Satsumton. I come from Lummi. I'd like to thank you all for being here on this day. I don't know the Lummi language, but I am learning, and I am doing my best. And my name is uh, Bo Garrell. I am from Cheyenne River, which is located in South Dakota. I am a, a Lakota that is um, comes from a small town. I will be talking about some upcoming designs and artwork. Today our guest is Sialk uh, Jewel James, a respected elder and master carver from the Lummi Nation, uh, director of the Sovereignty and Treaty Protection Office at the Lummi Nation, a leader uh, both within Indian country and at the national, international on uh, those issues related to indigenous rights. Welcome to the show. I'm proud to be here. Thank you. Today we're going to uh, visit what uh, we always do every year at this time, uh, the recognition and uh, remembering the importance of treaty and the Tre Point Elliott Treaty of 1855, what that means to the Lummi people and those people that work for or against the Lummi people in recognition of those rights. So today we want to have that conversation with Jewel um, and what he knows about uh, the treaty, what is a treaty, and why is the treaty of 1855 so important to the Lummi people and other signers of that treaty uh, to recognize that and uphold those rights. <clears throat> well, you know, the... Um... <clears throat> Uh, we should talk about pre-treaty. We should talk a little bit about the constitutional foundations for entering treaties with the United States. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people don't have this history, and you don't really have it covered in your uh, uh, political science or your civic uh, classes, either in high school or, you know, and you'd almost have to find a uh, special class at the universities specializing in Native American studies in order to be introduced to the idea of uh, federal Indian law and uh, U.S. Indian policy. But when you look into the history of the government-to-government -government relationships with the United States and the Indian tribes, and that's exactly what it is, a treaty is a, a document. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, there's domestic treaties and there's international treaties. And the United States has entered uh, about 700 domestic treaties with Indian tribes. And <clears throat> this is authorized by Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the United States Constitution, where the United States itself has 
had inherited the power to uh, uh, negotiate with Indian tribes, but it really kind of spun off from the idea that was uh, proclaimed by the proclamation of King George in 1763, where he was addressing the co- uh, colonies and saying, stay out of Indian country. I, the king, I'm the only one empowered to negotiate treaties or relationships with Indian tribes or to authorize or conduct uh, trade and commerce with them. And so that proclamation was controversial because there was a lot of um, land speculation going on in the Ohio Territory areas uh, west of the Appalachians, outside of the original 13 colonies. And when the um, uh, Articles Confederation, which was the state sovereignty constitution, was enacted right after the revolution, uh, that was leading to wars. And one of the issues, of course, is uh, not just... Uh, interstate competition over commerce and taxes, but also whether or not they had rights to uh, enter relationships with Indians. And they also took the position even then that it was a national power, but you didn't really have a strong national government. And so either there's going to be all-out wars with Indian tribes or wars between the new states. And so they entered into what we call the Popular Sovereignty Constitution. That's the one we have now that says, we the people. And in that, the people delegated certain powers to the president as well as the Senate to uh, negotiate treaties as well as ratify those treaties. And so most of the treaties that were ratified, of course, the treaties that were ratified were done under constitutional provision, just as it says under Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. And once they're ratified and proclaimed by the president, then they became supreme law of the land under Article 6, uh, both Clause 1 and Clause 2. Clause 2 is the supremacy clause. And so it's uh, so the Constitution, treaties made, and acts of Congress uh, are all supreme law of the land. And so for Indian tribes, there are about 370 treaties that were ratified by the Senate and were binding upon the United States. About 700 were negotiated, and a few hundred were uh, submitted for uh, Senate ratification, but were they never got around to ratify them. And that was, you know, for the uh, California tribes, that's a real hard spot in their history. Uh, <clears throat> the United States has secured 3.8 million square miles of land uh, from, through Indian treaties. You know, so these are important documents and are ju- just as important as the U.S. Constitution itself because it establishes the territory of the United States and what became the 50 uh, states of the Union. But the individual states themselves were prohibited under Article One, uh, <clears throat> Section 10 of the United States Constitution from entering any uh, treaties or agreements with the Indian tribes. And you can actually go into the um, Constitutional Convention minutes, you'll find that that's very clear. States have no power to uh, uh, enter treaties with Indian tribes, nor did they have power to regulate commerce with Indian tribes. Under Art, That's a national power under Article One, Section 8, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution. When you look at the uh, Constitution itself, it structured the government-to-government relationship fairly clearly, and that was the proclamation of the United States Congress in 1987 to 1989 in uh, Senate Concurrent Resolution 76 and House Concurrent Resolution 331 after the Congress conducted uh, uh, congressional hearings as to how the Native Americans actually contributed to the uh, form of constitutional government that the United States created in 1787. So uh, what were the attitudes uh, back then, uh, pre-treaty, leading up to the U.S. development of the U.S. Constitution? And what was their... What was their purpose of of uh, putting 
Indians in the U.S. Constitution? Well, uh, uh, one one thing they knew uh, knew is that there are individual Indians that may leave their uh, nation and actually apply for citizenship, just like a foreigner, you know, and uh, that's under Article One. Section 8, Clause 4 of the U.S. Constitution and the powers of naturalized uh, people. And so the Congress does have the power to uh, uh, make individual citizens. But what the founding fathers understood was that Indians, tribal Indians and their nations were separate from the United States. In order to make that clear, they had enacted Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, and they used the word excluding Indians not taxed. And the reason they used that language was, uh, first, they couldn't tax Indian, tribal Indians, and Indian tribes, and they excluded, excluded them from something. What, is they, what are they excluding them from? We, the people of the United States, we are not members of their, uh, their country. And so when the... Um, Almost 100 years later, uh, when they had the Civil War and they enacted the 14th Amendment, uh, they repeated some language specifically. This is the 39th and 40th U.S. US Congresses on the reconstruction of the uh, the relationship they had with the South. And they specifically said in a, when it came to Section 1 of the 14th Amendment that tribal Indians and Indian tribes were not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. That's why they have that language, subject to the jurisdiction thereof in that section. In Section 2, uh, the uh, Congress said that because the tr states will try to do that which the United States cannot do, we have to make it very clear that tribal Indians and their nations uh, cannot be uh, – tribal Indians of their own nations cannot become U.S. citizens. So they uh, repeated the language, including Indians not taxed in the sec Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. And they felt that was going to be very clear, and that was substantiated in the case Elk versus Wilkins in 1884, where the um, John Elk wanted to be a uh, U.S. citizen, but he was an Omaha Indian, a tribal Indian. They said, John Elk, based on the way the Constitution is written, you cannot be a U.S. citizen. Unless you uh, left your people permanently and you swore allegiance to the United States and you individually applied like any foreigner would have under the naturalization process. And that, that's been uh, – that was a theoretically uh, – good constitutional uh, opinion of the Supreme Court. It hasn't been overridden. It's just been ignored. We'll be right back with more from Sam Nasilicha, Friends and Relatives. I'm uh, Satsumton, Darrell Hilaire, and we're here with Jewel James on KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham, Washington.
just joining us you're listening to the friends and relatives radio hour my name is tony hilaire and today we are talking with my respected elder jewel praying wolf james uh thank you jewel for being here we are talking about treaty rights and remembering the signing of the point elliott treaty in 1855 by the u.s and the lummi people this is an important date in lummi history why well, it's an important date for all of Pacific Northwest. Uh, first of all, I just want to uh, say that if you understand the system of government that was expanding across the United States, then you understand the importance of treaty relationships with the Indian tribes. You know, a lot of people like to think the United States was giving us something, but in reality, uh, the treaties were a uh, grant of rights from the tribes to the United States. And uh, the United States was specifically after expanding its territory. Under Article 4 of the United States uh, Constitution, the United States would ha- has what they call a property clause. And so whenever you entered a treaty with the tribe, the United States secured uh, uh, title, if they honored the treaty, to the land that was ceded from the tribes to the United States. And then from there, uh, they would uh, create new states. You know, and so as the United States was expanding from the 13 colonies all the way to the Pacific Northwest, new states were being created. But first of all, it became a territory. And under the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, after you had a certain population, you then structured a government, then you moved into statehood. And here in the Pacific Northwest, the um, tribes had, were, had first face-to-face contact in 1792, but the diseases came first, and so the diseases like uh, smallpox really wiped out a lot of people. That's why you hear, uh, if you ever read the history, uh, Chief Seattle says, uh, at one time we numbered more than the stars in the sky. But that time has passed. Well, he was born after the uh, uh, last major smallpox epidemic. There was a, uh, another one after that, but that was the major one that really killed off a lot of people here in the Pacific Northwest. But being as it may, the United States had uh, declared the Oregon Territory in later in the uh, 18, early 1850s. Then they expanded into Oregon-Washington Territory, and then they assigned uh, Joel Palmer of Oregon Territory and Isaac Stevens of Washington Territory to begin negotiating treaties with the United uh, Indian tribes in, in order to secure title. So what they're doing is they're actually allowing people to come into Pacific Northwest and claim land that the United States didn't own yet by treaty. You still had Great Britain in here, and you had uh, the French here, and you had the Spanish here, you had the Russians here. All of them were claiming uh, rights to the Pacific Northwest. And so between the 1820s and 1850s, the United States had to enter these international uh, treaties with these other foreign governments first, uh, getting them to back out, otherwise there could be a war. And so as Spain, France, uh, England, and Russia withdrew by these treaties, uh, then they opened up the uh, territory and they go, oh, wait, we forgot about the Indians, you know, so we have to enter treaty negotiations. So the Congress in 1853 authorized the president to begin negotiating treaties. Uh, A guy named... um, 
George Manipenny negotiated a treaty with the Omahas in 1854, and that became the role model. It was the boilerplate treaty, and he sent it to Isaac Stevens and Joel Palmer here in the Pacific Northwest, and he was the commissioner of Indian Affairs, and he said, here, use this treaty, but move out uh, and get those treaties because we need peace. What was going on is that the um, settlers were coming into the land of the Cayuse and the Walla Walla and the Yakimas and the Spokans and uh, what... Uh, the Nez Perce, and they're uh, uh, looking for gold and staking claims, and uh, you know, and of course hostilities broke out, and it led to wars here in the Pacific Northwest. And so the tribes uh, east of the uh, mountain range uh, uh, were quick to uh, defend their territories, and. You know, here in the Pacific Northwest, there were uh, tribes were putting calls out to the Nisqually, you know, and other tribes to join them in this war and drive the invaders out, you know, and um, uh, <clears throat> Chief Leshai, he was he was a man defending his territory, you know, but they hung him as some type of murderer, but he was really just a warrior leading his people. You know, so these wars did break out in the treaties of peace and friendship, and that's what they all are, treaties of peace and friendship. But it was under a common theme. Uh, we went from a large territory uh, to shrinking it down to what became the reservation system. And that was a creation of George Manypenny's to his treaty with the Omahas. And his idea was to uh, start having Indians uh, learn to own private property so that they wouldn't be roaming in their traditional territories. So the Point Elliott Treaty was uh, one of uh, several that Isaac Stevens negotiated on his own. Joel Palmer negotiated some on his own in Oregon Territory. And they negotiated a, a a uh, couple uh, in common together. But it covered uh, Idaho, Washington, uh, Montana, Oregon. You know, it was a large territory that it covered. So at that time, uh, the Lummi people, along with all of our relatives within uh, the Coast Salish Territory, did uh, they all, uh, when they traveled down to sign the Treaty of uh, Mukilteo, were they all of the same mind, or were there people that were offering resistance or uh, not knowing or uh, wanting to <clears throat> to sign the treaty on the spot? Was there was there different opinions? Well, uh, uh, people, you know, what they don't know is uh, kind of important, too. The uh, Lummies, uh, along with the—we uh, were part of the Duwamish-Suquamish uh, Treaty Alliance, or, you know, which became the Point Elliott Treaty, but actually the alliance formed about 1690. Uh, it was 100 years old when uh, Vancouver sailed in the Straits of Juan de Fuca. And for 100 years, the tribes uh, led by the Duwamish-Suquamish had allied to keep the uh, raids of the Klingit and uh, Haidas uh, down to a minimum. And so uh, that's why we had, uh, you know, we have what we call these uh, war canoes. You know, they're really sleek and really fast. And so we'd have war canoes usually stationed at the north end of the uh, most of the islands. And those would be our lookouts. And they would uh, warn uh, Lummies or members of the alliance that the Haidas or Klingits were coming into Puget Sound and uh, conducting a raid. But uh, we weren't fighting with uh, Spain, France, Russia, or England. We're actually uh, uh, in a constant state of war with the Haidas and Klingits. And those raids were taking place over uh, uh, fishing areas? Well, uh, they actually came into uh, our usual custom uh, territories. The, uh, when we think about uh, fishing territories, well, let me say uh, the people of the San Juan Islands, you know, and uh, we're reef netters. And uh, uh, we're proud to say that uh, 
the vision of reef netting uh, came to us. You know, and uh, we, uh, as a consequence, uh, we had uh, married into uh, other tribes, or other tribes married into us in order to share in the technology of the reef net system. So, the Lummies and the uh, Clallams, the uh, Samish, the Simiamas, you know, and um, uh, the tribes of uh, eastern Van- southeastern Vancouver Island were all intermarrying all the way up to. Um, uh, the tribes that would gather at uh, what's now Point Roberts, you know, and so <clears throat> these were important um, uh, intertribal alliance uh, formations as well, where we became the same people really by through marriage. And so we arrive at at Point Elliot in 1855, and and we speak uh, a certain dialect of our of our Coast Salish people, and there with uh, Isaac Stevens were. Interpreters. Well, you know, Isaac Stevens, um, they, they had two different types of uh, trade language that was formed. It's called Chinook jargon. And you had an inland version and a coastal version. But uh, it's named after the Chinook tribe because they're one of the most prominent uh, uh, trading tribes throughout the area at the time of contact. Uh, they're pretty small now and still battling to be federally recognized. But uh, Chinook uh, at that time was a prominent tribe. And Chinook jargon was uh, composed of British and English, uh, Spanish, and Russian words. And so Isaac Stevens did have uh, George Gibbs there to help interpret, and so they might say, "Ishla uh, uh, treaty," and that's Chinook jargon. You know, so they said, "My friends, uh, uh, come here. We are going to work on this treaty." You know, and so they take that type of language, and uh, George Gibbs would say, "Oh, this is what he's saying." But you heard the word "treaty," right? So that's the English word in it. And there might be some French and other words that are kind of mixed into it. And so then George Gibbs would translate it, and it's a trade language of about 300 words. And so it really wasn't uh, uh, really an in-depth, detail uh, translation of what was intended. You know, and uh, that's why you have to understand the people and you have to understand the times and the intent and the idea of the type of relationship we had with our territory, with each other. And because you know, our, our culture, our traditions, our song, our dance, our ceremony, and our language were all interwoven to create a uh, cosmology that was indigenous. You know, so that's never translated. But, you know, one of the things that was uh, a, a problem for Chief Seattle uh, was that uh, he wanted uh, ancestors' graves and cemeteries protected to sacred places. And so George, um, Isaac Stevens knew that was an important part of the negotiations, and they didn't uh, put it into the record, and they didn't add the language that was asked to protect the uh, ancestors' remains and stuff. And so he promised to do that. And then he ran off to the Civil War and got killed. And so that's uh, for the Lummies at Simiama, I mean, uh, at Point Elliot and the other tribes, you know, that's a part of our battle now, like uh, at Cherry Point, these areas where we had these historical villages that were they're associated or correlated uh, large cemeteries attached to the sites. And we'll be right back with more from Jewel James, uh, my name is Daryl Holler, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. See, I'm nostalgia. Hey, 
Thanks for coming back and joining us. You were listening to the Lakota flag song by the Porcupine Singers out of South Dakota. Um, you are now listening to uh, Friends and Relatives Radio Hour. I'm Bo Garrow, and t- today we'll continue talking with uh, our respected elder, Jewel Prayingwolf James. So correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, recently you brought a totem pole throughout the United States and Canada, and finally... Uh, settled it in Manitoba to raise awareness for the threats on our environment by crude oil and fossil fuels. Can you elaborate more on what the totem pole represented? Um, Does it have a name and how this journey played into our treaty rights? I know that you changed course in order to bring your totem through Standing Rock and how was it there? Uh, Well, you know, we're the Sovereignty Treaty Protection Office of the Lummi Nation, and we're assigned uh, by the nation to uh, really look at the questions of threats that uh, coal posed to uh, Cherry Point. And as we began to look at that, we realized that uh, Cherry Point, which was supposed to be the largest coal export site in North America if it went through, uh, it did pose a serious threat to uh, the, the environmental quality of uh, here, as well as uh, pose a health problem to citizens, not just lummies, all citizens. And the reason is that uh, coal is full of arsenic and mercury, and if you're bringing it, for, whether it's from uh, Wyoming or Montana, and bringing it across a uh, uh, mile-and-a-half train, shaking over a ton off on each train, 18 trains a day, 365 days a year for 20, 30 years, you know, and that's a lot of arsenic. That's a lot of mercury. And so we began to uh, plan and strategize on how to protect the site. But in order to do that, we realized that, first of all, you know, Lummi people are not alone. You know, the Pacific Northwest has a lot of people that really love the beauty and quality of life we have here. And so we hope to reach out to uh, citizens groups, uh, political organizations, environmental groups, church groups, and tri- and other tribes and form alliances. And at the time, there were uh, half a dozen coal ports being proposed here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you had a pipeline called Enbridge up there in uh, middle British Columbia that was being proposed coming out of the Tar Sands. You had the Kinder Morgan pipeline coming out of uh, Tar Sands out of North than Alberta. You got the Dapple, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. You had the Keystone Pipeline, and then Pipeline East. Uh, and all of these pipelines are crossing all the rivers and streams and creeks in between. You know, and uh, so we had a threat uh, both from um, what they call Dilbit, uh, which is the heavy crude uh, oils uh, being melted out of the ground of northern Alberta. And then you have to add dilutants to it. And then you uh, can pressurize it through the pipes, and then you can put it on the ships, you know. And so once it gets on the ships, and it's not will the ship, uh, will there be a sh- uh, possibly be a, a shipwreck? There will be a shipwreck. It's just a matter of time. And the thing about uh, this deal bid is that uh, we recognize, and as everybody that became our allies, that it would, uh, the dilutes would e- evaporate real quick. And then the crude gets really heavy and sinks to the bottom. And there's no recovery. And so there's no technology where you can protect the uh, Salish Sea or any of the rivers or streams that the deal bit's uh, going over through pipelines. You can't recover it. It's just a permanent uh, destruction of that system. 
Um, we, we've done totem pole uh, journeys. Uh, we put a totem pole up at Tsleil-Waututh Nation, where the Kendra Morgan Pipeline is, going to be the terminus on the Fraser uh, River. And the reason was is that the Tsleil-Waututh Nation felt that a lot of people weren't hearing their cry and uh, call for help. But, but the totem pole journey, when we worked it with them, it produced a, a 7.8 million hits on their website. You know, so it did bring a lot of attention, and it got national, international press. And so we did uh, uh, educate the public. That's our goal, educate the public, because if the public knows, then they'll stand up. But if you keep it quiet and you rush the hearings through, then the public don't have the opportunity to be informed. And then that's when you get a lot of these uh, projects approved. And so we knew we had a duty to uh, create public awareness. Uh, we then did a totem pole journey to northern Alberta, to the Beaver Lake Cree, and again bringing attention to the uh, tribe that was standing there and fighting the tar sands uh, industry itself. You know, there's like 400 companies that are out there to melt this heavy crude out of the ground. They all paid like $300 million for each license. And so they're really invested into uh, getting this uh, heavy crude out of the ground. And they're devastating everything. It looks like the moon. It looks like somebody, a nuclear bomb the moon you know and a lot of cancer the animals and the fish and the birds and the people are dying of cancer that are exposed to the area and so we worked with the beaver lake Cree and put a totem pole up there and brought media attention to them and then we brought another one to northern cheyenne uh, they're fighting one of the proposed largest strip mines proposed in the country. And that coal would have also come to the Pacific Northwest area, either Longview or Cherry Point, along with the uh, uh, coal, coal from the Crow Nation. And so um, uh, we brought attention to that, and I know they're at, right at the end, their nation uh, really came on board and really stood up. And uh, finally, the company withdrew its application for those permits. So we're like, uh, we're really proud that we participated in those uh, campaigns. But you know, we also uh, uh, brought one over to Manitoba. And again, it's the same thing. We uh, bring attention to the question of whether or not we, the people of the United States, or we, the citizens of Canada, can condone this type of environmental impact to our waters and our lands. And so uh, through unification, uh, through alliance formation, we're able to multiply the number of people speaking out. You know, and we've always told them, write to your congressman, write to your government, you know, uh, whether it's state or provincial, you know, get a hold of uh, the people that are responsible for making these decisions. You know, of course, the Lummi Nation uh, took a lot of action to uh, protect the uh, Salish Sea, and they, they fought a very uh, a great battle uh, dealing with the Army Corps of Engineers' uh, proposed proposal to review whether or not these companies would get a permit uh, for the Cherry Point area. And based on the history of treaty law and uh, numerous Supreme Court decisions that uh, uh, that the Lummi Nation had participated in securing over the past hundred years, we were able to get an Army Corps of Engineers decision uh, May of last year that said the uh, permit cannot be granted. And so for a lot of the uh, local community, they're really extremely happy. But we knew that uh, when you form alliances, that means that you also have to uh, support others. So we knew that even though uh, we had won the Cherry Point uh, uh, battle, the tribe did, that we also have to be a, uh, pay a attention to what's going on to places like uh, Standing Rock. Uh, we know this. Uh, Yankton Sioux immediately got all the Lummi Nation when they read about the uh, Army Corps' decision because they're in the same boat down there, uh, both at Yankton and Standing Rock, where they're looking at the impacts of the DAPL project, where there was no consultation. 
the tribes were not being, uh, nobody is paying attention to the tribes' concerns. They're basically being shoved aside. You know, and uh, for the tribes, it was, uh, uh, Standing Rock was a serious threat, you know, and they were hurt and uh, injured by the idea that the people in the surrounding communities said it's okay to do it to the Indians, but don't do it to us. You know, it's okay to re- just relocate it so it goes to Indian country. You know, and that's been the history of the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, opinion and policies dealing with Indian tribes. Even though they have numerous hundreds of treaties with us, uh, a lot of times they've uh, always convinced themselves as, quote, business people, corporations, that you can do it to the Indians as long as you don't do it to the good white people. You know, and so, as you can see by the thousands and thousands of people that went to Standing Rock, uh, 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 accessing the media, uh, t- whether it's newspaper, radio, television. Uh, uh, right now it's the uh, social media on, uh, on the phones and everything. This really gets the word out, and it's really important for people to be informed, you know, uh, get the facts get the information, and then speak out, organize, and exercise your rights. You know, you have the right to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. You know, and uh, this is important as a part of the uh, American creed. You know, this is part of our vision of constitutional government, where if we feel that we're being oppressed, if we're being shoved down and ignored, then we, the people, can speak out, we can march, we can address these issues, and we can hold our leadership accountable. You know, and... um. As we know, there's a big battle over the popular vote right now. And, uh, you know, I'd like to believe that uh, America learned its lesson and will probably uh, deal with this popular vote crisis that just took place. What did you What did you see at Standing Rock when first arriving there? What was happening and what was the general mood of the people, both tribal and non-tribal, as, uh, as things began to galvanize around the, the protection of the water there? Well, when uh, when we got there, uh, we're uh, our chairman directed us to uh, divert. Uh, we were going to go up into uh, Canada, right from uh, when we went we're at Idaho, we we're at Sandpoint, Idaho. And then we we're heading up into uh, uh, northern Alberta, and then bouncing back down to Saskatchewan, and then uh, drop down into the South Dakota area. Uh, but we we're asked to divert right to Standing Rock, and so we, when we got there, um, we're there probably, we made it about two hours ahead of. Um, uh, the seven tribes that showed up from the Pacific Northwest, Lummi, uh, you know, the Swinomish, uh, these tribes came in. Yakima came in. Oh, man, Yakima was beautiful. You know, they really came in and all the regalia and, you know, and uh, the people, uh, Standing Rock uh, chairman met everybody personally, went out, shook their hand, uh, glad that they're paying attention to uh, the concerns of the Standing Rock. And, uh, you know, and uh, he's, a, he's a tall uh, uh, man. He's a... Uh, healthy, you know, and uh, he's a, uh, you know, a man's man type leader, you know, but he had tears in his eyes. And um, uh, he, you know, the idea was not, not that, that he's a soft type of guy, but uh, he was worried about his people. He was worried about their health. He was worried about their water. He was worried about the future generations and what's going to happen to them if this pipeline goes through and destroys their uh, uh, water sources, you know. And so uh, he was really uh, worried about his people. You know, and uh, he, he really takes this campaign to heart, you know, and it's a, it's a central thing, a tenant for his uh, representation of his people that uh, they will protect the water, just like the air and the water and the land and the people. And so we're deeply uh, moved by that. And the Northwest tribes uh, uh, were really happy to be able to meet with him and form an alliance to work with them. And then we all uh, went out to um, Cannonball itself, you know, and... Um, you know, the Yakima's led in their regalia, and uh, the people were cheering, 
you know, the, uh, uh, a lot of people were crying because they felt that um, the press was ignoring this battle and nobody was hearing their voices. And uh, we got to be a part of that, you know, and um, uh, there was a lot of song, dance, and ceremony. And we didn't see anybody uh, doing anything violent. It was all peace, you know, and it was all according to what we would consider uh, a, a common idea when we our people gather on uh, religious things or spiritual things. You know, there's peace amongst brothers, you know, and that's a, a really important concept of peace amongst nations. You come in peace and you leave in peace when it comes to the land and the protection of the people's uh, spiritual relationships with it. And so that's what we observed. And um, uh, while we were there, uh, they started putting up the flags. The tribes were bringing their flags. And pretty soon it was 20 flags and 40 flags. And, uh, you know, in the next month, it was over 200 flags flying there. So it was quite, you know, it became a real big issue. And, of course, when the veterans got there, that was the big thing. Uh, we were challenging a lot of churches, you know. Uh, you said you support us, but we don't see you here. You know, and so I know a lot of churches did show up. But it was the veterans that really showed up, you know, because they fought for the uh, life, liberty, and freedoms of this country. You know, and it's not just Native veterans. It was veterans of all races that were there. Here with uh, Jewel James. Uh, we'll be right back with more. My name is Tony Hilaire, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. Siam Nostalgia. Well, that's it, friends and relatives. Kwal Hoyt. Till next time, we'll get back together and we'll have another conversation coming from the Coast Salish homeland and those things that are important to us that are perhaps fun, and things that we would like to share with our audience. Thank you all for listening to our words. Thank you to our special guest, Jewel James, and our production team, Steve Capanos, Suzanne Blaze, Stephanie Contouras, and Robert Muzzy. You can find us online at settingsunproductions.org and on Facebook at Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Please share the news with your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Listen for us on KMRE 102.3 FM, online at kmre.org, and on your TuneIn radio app on your smartphone. On behalf of Daryl and Bo, Heishka, until next time. We leave you with this song, The Lakota Lullaby by Robert Tree Cody. Oh,
Yeah. 